Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline. Today, joined by Dr. Jan Hans Hansel, um, who is coming to us today because I, as soon as I saw this post, so this is going to be a wet ink podcast. So this one just uh, just hot off the presses and uh, talking about video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy for adults undergoing uh, tracheal intubation. And so immediately when this was posted on Facebook on IM Docs, I'm like, I got to get you on here because this is a topic that I deal with all the time. Um, not to mention the cool aspect of, of getting to hear your backstory and, and where you're from and some of that perspective uh, from the European side of emergency medicine and critical care medicine um, that we've missed out a bit since we've transitioned into COVID from all of our smack experiences and such. And so we want to bring you on, um, gracious to come on and talk about this uh, research and data. And I think we've all kind of known that with the growth of uh, video laryngoscopes within our emergency departments uh, and EMS agencies, that uh, we knew that the that likely we were going to see that there is uh, writing on the wall of a change in the uh, standard with regard to successes, first pass, uh, safety, and those types of things. And we'll talk about some of that other stuff as well and the importance of learning some of the, of making sure that uh, proficiency at direct laryngoscopy, but understanding that the technology is there now. And I can still remember the first glide scope that I had, and uh, neither of us is sponsored by them, by the way. Um, the first glide scope I had in residency at Good Samaritan, it wasn't residency, as I graduated at Good Samaritan Hospital. And just seeing the views you could get. And right now it's almost like cheating. Um, uh, with how easy this technology is in most cases. So, um, Jan, thanks for joining us here on the Frontline Podcast. And first and foremost, give us a little background about you because you have a great story uh, that involves where you are now in your PGY, you think, six-year uh, up there in, in, north, in the Northwest trying to wrap up in critical care. Mm. Yeah, no, f- thanks for having me, Ryan. And uh, it's, it's just a pleasure to be on, on the podcast and to discuss this. And uh, well, well, as for my background, I'm a registrar in intensive care medicine, which would be, which would equate to about being being a resident in the states, um, and and I sort of had a bit of a scenic route into where I am right now. So I qualified in in Slovenia, that was back in 2015, and then moved to Iceland immediately upon qualifying, and, and did my sort of internship year in Iceland uh, and then went went into emergency medicine and wanted to be wanted to be an emergency doc. Um, then for various reasons I pivoted into intensive care medicine uh, with with joint and, and aesthetics as well. Um, and sort of that's where, where I am right now uh, training in the northwest of England Manchester way. Um, so yeah. And so we've, we're actually sitting here right now. Uh, he didn't realize when I jumped on that I was, at, I'd wrapped up five, a run of five shifts last night. And so this is day off and it's uh, afternoon, late afternoon here um, in Kentucky. And I assume for you, it's, it's getting close to dark. It is. Um, it is. And, and I'm, right. I, I'm off sick anyway with COVID. So, <laughs> well, yeah. perfect. And so we are sharing, um, we're sharing some Kentucky beverage. I've got a, <laughs> A little Weller Antique, and he has got a little Jim Beam, both both made here in the bluegrass. So we are having our tasting, and uh, Ken Milne can be jealous and gives him more reason to join me in San Francisco this year uh, for our annual uh, Canada-U.S. tasting that we'll have. So I appreciate that. Good little flavor. Hopefully that's going to help your voice. I know it will. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least it'll feel like it does. Mm -hmm. So give us a little background 
uh, on this uh, research, uh, where it is, when it came out, because we're talking, I mean, this is truly wet ink, um, kind of, I think uh, the initial post was nine days ago uh, when it got released. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it got published on the 4th of April, finally, and that, that was quite a tumultuous process because uh, getting a Cochrane review out uh, is not as easy as it might seem initially. Um but we were fortunate enough to approach this as an update. So we didn't have to do the, the groundwork from scratch, you know, doing all the registration and everything. So, so the skeleton of the review was ready uh, when, when I joined the project. Uh, and I was just essentially fortunate enough to be involved by uh, Andy Smith, who's the uh, last author on the review, uh, one, of my, one of my supervisors in, in Lancaster, a very, very prolific anesthetist, uh, Lancaster way. Um, and and he sort of sort of floated the idea like okay I've got this that needs doing you know this is five years now from the original review which was published in 2016 and authored primarily by Sharon Lewis and and uh, he said okay th this needs doing do you want to tackle it and I said sure yes and immediately I knew that this is something that's you know that's capturing the imagination of of everybody who deals with airways so it's not just an anesthetics thing anymore this is this is emergency medicine critical care pre hospital and ED, of course, and, and I knew that this is something that's hot, and it'll probably stay hot until we phase out direct laryngoscopes, if that happens at any point in the future. Um, so, so, so I jumped on the opportunity, so to speak, and we, we started work early in 2021. I had a bit of spare time on my hands alongside my, my clinical work, so, so I managed to devote a fair chunk of my time that was non-clinical to this, and got the ball rolling. And we assembled a team. Then Tim Cook joined as well, who's who's quite a well-known name in, in airway research here in the UK and worldwide. Uh, and one of his trainees as well from down, down from Bath. And that was the team of five, essentially, that did the whole, the whole thing. Uh, so the only mandate really is to get everything done within a year. From the first search to publication, you need to, you need to make that happen in a year. And <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise because I knew that, that the studies had accumulated in the past five years, but we didn't know what the scope of that was until we ran the searches. And when we, when we ultimately ended up with 222 studies for, for data extraction, uh, <laughs> it was a big task. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. 222 is a bunch. And that's, and it's amazing considering where we are uh, with the transition from, well, the, it's not even transition, the inclusion of video laryngoscopy to direct laryngoscopy, you know, because coming through residency, we had, you know, we had some of the Bronx and we had things like that that we could use on difficult airways, but we really didn't have ready access to video laryngoscopy. And as I mentioned, it was after I graduated from residency and was, I guess it was 2008, uh, as a new attending at Good Samaritan, uh, that we had our first video uh, laryngoscope. And then, so getting used to that, now seeing the technology with the different types uh, that are out there, the blade angulations, the stylets, and everything that is, uh, that is there, you know, the technology with preventing fogging and gunking, uh, gun uh, gunking of the cameras and things of that nature. But this really is something that's evolved significantly really over the last... 14, 15 years uh, from early uh, versions to where we are now. In fact, used one last night in the emergency department. And so, you know, this is to say 222 studies, you know, in that window is a significant amount of data updating since 2016, as you mentioned. 
So give us a breakdown of those 20, 222 studies, what you're looking for, and kind of some of that breakdown of the, of the things and the consistencies and what you found in those studies. Yes, it's a good question. Thanks. Uh, it's, it's In terms of the studies, what we included were only RCTs and quasi-RCTs. So, so we, we, try to, we try to trim off any you know, lower quality evidence, so to speak. So any observational data we, we wouldn't look at, really, because there was so much already in the way of RCTs. Not saying that observational data isn't valuable in terms of ascertaining the value of video laryngoscopy, and, and we, we can come back to that later. There was just recently uh, an observational study published from, from the Dutch uh, HEMS group that you know adds incredibly valuable data to, to uh, how video laryngoscopes can be useful to clinicians. But essentially, we, we limited ourselves to RCTs. And we found, I think, 30,000-odd uh, studies on the first search and then limited that down uh, by, by doing full-text searching and deduping and, you know, the, the standard process. And within those 222 studies, we knew that most of them are going to be limited in some way in terms of the risk of bias, obviously, because we use the risk of bias tool that, that Cochrane, uh, Cochrane adopts, which is the risk of bias version 1. And there you essentially assess every study according to six different domains and you can add extra domains if necessary. And all of these studies are biased, obviously, in terms of the fact that you can't blind intubators. So it's it's just impossible to to say, okay, you know, we'll we'll blind whoever's intubating. You can potentially blind to uh, outcome assessors for certain outcomes, but definitely not for outcomes such as, you know, uh, glottic view or, you know, what the cormac Lehaney grade was or uh, wh whether the intubation was successful or not because it happens instantaneously. So so that was a significant limitation to all studies. So we just, across that domain, we, we ranked all of them as being at high risk of bias, which is important because this sort of downgrades our certainty of evidence for all of these outcomes across all domains to, to at best, moderate certainty evidence. Um, there has been a trend in systematic reviews and meta-analyses recently to, to not be overly generous in terms of, you know, the grade assessments. Uh, and, and I think we, we try to, you know, sort of toe that line carefully, not to overestimate any of these assessments. Um, so that's, that's where the studies came from. In, in terms of what might be more interesting for, for your listeners is uh, most of these studies were conducted in the theater setting. So, so this was, you know, done in the OR. And by most, I mean 90%. 21 of them, however, were done outside of theater. And that's a significant increase from, from 2016, where I think we only had four or five studies that were done either in the ICU or, or in the emergency department. And since then, this is, this is sort of, sort of uh, uh, accumulated uh, to the point where I think we had, we had about uh, four studies pre-hospital and I think eight and eight uh, in ICU and ED, respectively. Um, so, so those are those are adding valuable data on the you know risk and benefit profile of video laryngoscopy outside of the operating theater setting as well. Uh, so, so that's where we are in terms of the studies. We obviously looked at only adults because there is a separate Cochrane review for video laryngoscopy in kids, and then a separate one for neonates as well. Um, and and I think that's that's sort of sort of it in in terms of the generalities of the studies. Yeah, and we're seeing this transition. Um, you know, the the idea behind the direct laryngoscopy is 
is making the airway match our line of sight. Whereas with the modern, especially modern video laryngoscopes, is taking advantage of the natural anatomy and getting the tool to match the anatomy uh, of the of the person that's being involved. And I think that um, the outside of theater, as you put it, um, consideration is important because I think one of the things that we see ICU, but especially emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine. You know, pre-hospital medicine, where you're trying to intubate somebody in a dark room inside their house, wedged between a toilet and a bathtub. Um, you know, those those difficult situations, the crashing airway, or as I call it in the emergency, emergency department, the dirty airway, you're not going to, you very rarely get a great airway. The patient is already circling the drain. They're already, you know, they're already in, you know, significant extremis. Um, it's a dirty airway, whether it's from trauma with the blood or it's, it's vomitus or whatever it may be. Um, there's, there's significant challenges and things that are going to, to amp it up a, a bit versus the controlled intubation of an otherwise healthy person coming in for a, a, for a procedure. Now, that being said, if somebody is crashing, completely different story. But, you know, that, that discussion, and a lot of times when I hear um, a little bit of pushback against uh, the, the video laryngoscope, it has to do with the dirty airway. Of I, I got it in there, it mucked the, the, mucked the camera, mucked the light, you know, whatever it was to where it becomes very difficult and then getting the, the blade in there. And of course, a lot of that is technique, but uh, let's get into some of those findings uh, of what you guys boiled down from all of those studies um, of the, I think you really focused on the hyperangulated um, uh, aspect of the video laryngoscope versus direct laryngoscope, and then what does it mean for the outcomes uh, with regard to successful versus esophageal versus failed intubations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that you mentioned you know the austere environments of of pre-hospital or even ED intubations or ICU intubations. They they're they're completely different beasts. ICU physiologically difficult airway. Uh, ED also usually physiologically challenging, plus minus soiling with trauma and, and everything that you see. Uh, and then pre-hospital even more so when you have space constraints, like you mentioned. Um, and and we, we can track back to that later because we've done a done a separate subgroup analysis that's not strictly part of the Cochrane review itself, but but I was interested in, in teasing out what the data is saying there specifically. Um, the Cochrane review itself, when we lumped all of that together, so so looking at all studies and <clears throat> excuse me, so looking at all studies and uh, trying to see what what the outcomes are, we found benefit for video laryngoscopy in almost almost all of the critical outcomes. So we had four critical outcomes that, that we looked at. First one was failed intubation. Second one was hypoxemia. Then we looked at first pass success and uh, esophageal intubation. Finally, the esophageal intubation one we added on from the previous review, so that that, that was a new one. Um, for failed intubation across the board, for all three video laryngoscope designs, and you mentioned hyperangulated, we didn't necessarily single out hyperangulated video laryngoscopes, but we made, we made a specific distinction between the three different general types of video laryngoscopes. Now, one criticism is that that you know you can't really classify certain video laryngoscopes into necessarily a Macintosh style because they're not exactly a Macintosh style, such as a McGrath, for example. That's that's a Macintosh style-like video laryngoscope, but it doesn't handle exactly the way a Macintosh DL would handle. Whereas a C-Mac, Mac style, would would be almost almost exactly the same. So you can use it interchangeably. You can use it as a direct laryngoscope. So for, for questions of, for example, airway soiling, it becomes a moot point. It's a direct laryngoscope that also has a video feature. 
if that makes sense. Um, and and we we looked at we looked at Macintosh styles, we looked at hyperangulated ones, and then channeled video laryngoscopes. Uh, this will depend on settings. So certain certain departments might have easier access to channel video laryngoscopes, whereas the more popular ones will be the Macintosh style and the hyperangulated ones. And each of those might have specific benefits in certain patient populations, such as someone with a predicted difficult airway, you might sooner reach for a hyperangulated video laryngoscope than you would for a for a, a Macintosh style one. Uh, this being to do with, for example, having an, a more anterior larynx or just not your usual airway anatomy where you can't align the axes, as you've previously mentioned. Um, for, for failed intubation, going back to the outcomes, for failed intubation across these three video laryngoscopes, we noted significant reductions in failed intubations when we took all the numbers together. And these were, these were huge numbers. So we looked at 26,000 patients altogether. Um, and even when you broke it down by the three video laryngoscope types, you still saw significant benefit there. For first pass success rates, also across the board, uh, increased first pass success rates. Uh, hypoxemia was reduced significantly. Again, a bit of a misnomer for, for, for statistic, statistically pedantical folk, but <laughs> significantly reduced in, in uh, Macintosh style and channeled. Uh, but it didn't reach significance in, in hyperangulated uh, because, of, because of slightly wider confidence intervals there. And then for, for, for esophageal intubation, it's, it's interesting. Again, we only found it significantly reduced in, in hyperangulated video laryngoscopes. Although having looked at that and and I'd, I'd say you know watch this space there will be an editorial coming out on this this is something that is potentially out up for debate and and I would argue that that there's potentially uh, a benefit to be had with all types of video laryngoscopes in terms of preventing esophageal intubation and it depends what sort of analysis you conduct actually but uh, but I'm not going to go too much into that because I know Tim Cook is is coming out with an editorial on this so so it'll be an interesting space to follow yeah well he's going to be that well that you, you can also tee up a second podcast because we'll save it for later that's a teaser you can't get all the information now we got to get everybody involved for the next one when you mentioned the the significance of the uh, findings with video versus direct how big of a difference were you seeing there? What was the the relative difference and change in that success rate um, with regard to successful intubation, first pass intubation? Um, you mentioned the esophageal, with the exception of the uh, hyperangulated. Uh, where, how big of a difference are we talking? I mean, we're we're talking about risk ratios of zero point four one, zero point three nine, zero point I think four three. So this is this is significantly reduced for for all intubations lumped together. Um, and then when you when you combine that with quite narrow confidence intervals owing to you know the high uh, the large numbers, uh, this becomes fairly significant in the sense that this is probably probably or potentially a, a halving of uh, say failed intubations, uh, w which is hard to look away from um, at, at this stage. And it's a, and it, it may be a, you know, at that point, maybe a having, you know, a relative number. I mean, it's not going to be, um, 
you know, it's not talking about 100% versus 50% in terms of the success races, but, you know, that relative, but it's still, it's mm. still a, a relatively, you know, the, the absolute difference is going to be significant, especially for that person uh, who is successfully intubated versus the one who gets uh, gets the old goose. Let's t- talk about the uh, y'all, your conclusion. We'll get to y'all's conclusions, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions about where we are in terms of the world of VLDL in the practice mm-hmm. of medicine, basically worldwide. Um, so yeah, so, so, so in terms of, as you've correctly pointed out, these outcomes are quite rare. So for example, I'm, I'm opening up an analysis right here. So if you look at, if you look at failed intubation for, for Macintosh style video laryngoscopes out of, you know, 2,300 participants in the, uh, uh, in the video laryngoscope group, 76 might've experienced failed intubation, whereas 148 have experienced were were sort of exposed to failed intubation in uh, in the control group, so that's that's a that's almost a having really here. Um, but as you, as you've pointed out, this is these are small numbers, so so that's why it's important to lump this data together and and get the big numbers through so that you can actually start seeing a signal. Um, going back to going back to more more sort of an an international view of, of our uh, our findings. It's hard to say. I mean, it's not it's not the place of Cochrane reviews to make any recommendations for how people should be choosing their devices or approaching their clinical practice unless the evidence is so compelling that any alternatives would be precluded almost, let's say. Um, so we can't go so far as to make any recommendations we we can, however, use the data to inform our clinical practice, and and I can speak for for my personal experience. Um, I tend to reach for a video laryngoscope more readily since seeing this data and since having having done this review. Um, this also has to do, obviously, with how how accessible video laryngoscopes are in your practice. If you don't have a VL, it's it's impossible to to be forced to use a VL, obviously. So, so this might have to do with, uh, uh, with low and middle income countries, not having direct access to video laryngoscopy, for example. And, and so long as you have access to VL, I think this is the time where we should start thinking we should be reaching for that first because it improves success rates, uh, your first attempt is your best, or, you know, people say, make your first attempt your best attempt. That's, that's one of the mantras of, of airway management. And, and I think that's something, something to, to consider because every subsequent attempt, you will have started off slightly worse off because of tiny little trauma, swelling, and, you know, by your third attempt, you might have just, just made things worse for yourself by multiple attempts uh, where, where it's unsalvageable at that point. And then you have to consider, you know, doing front of neck, which, which everybody would want to avoid because it's not in the patient's interest. Um, so I think, I think we owe it to the patients to, if we have video laryngoscopes available to reach for them primarily. So that's my personal view. Uh, and I think it's shared within the author group, but we can't go so far as to say that in the review as such. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm to the, uh, Jan opinion part of the uh, podcast. Um, because a lot of things we, we hear is, is of course, you know, the experience with the video laryngoscope, there is learning curve. If you've done all DL so far, 
and you're transitioning to VL, there is a learning curve. It is much more a finesse skill. Um, when I when I've taught it in the past, you know, it's you know people talk, say that the direct laryngoscopy it's it's like holding a, a mug of beer, uh, which it's not. I mean, it, it's still finesse, but it's still finesse. But the video is very much about finesse. To where, uh, if I compared it, if if you say that uh, a direct laryngoscopy is is like holding a, a a stein of beer, then video is like having tea with the queen. Um, you know, even popping the fingers a little bit at the bottom, just because it's that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, but that very those very fine movements and and not being forceful. This is about you know letting the technology do those movements. But you know, so if you've done a lot of DLs, that transition does take a little bit of a moment to get that muscle memory in place. But we see a lot of pushback about, and I think this a lot of this was earlier. You know, could have been earlier 10, 15 years ago when I was talking about with. Uh, you've got batteries in the bottom of your video laryngoscope and things like that and worried about the technology failing or a camera getting mucked or whatever it may be. You know, this thing that you still have to be an expert in direct laryngoscopy. You, you need to do that one as much as possible, have the video laryngoscope uh, available. You know, talk about in, like in terms of your personal practice, you know, some of those ideas of pushback that says, well, you know, DL still needs to be the primary just because you have to keep that skill fresh versus VL, which is going to be that that rescue. And, and I know some of that part of what you just played into making that first attempt, your best attempt idea make sense there. Mm, mm, exactly. Um, and I think, I think pushback comes in many shapes and forms. So there will be some arguments that will have to do with, say, cost or environmental friendliness and, and and these i think some of these are more valid than others some will have to do with tradition for example this is this is the way we've done it for decades or or even we're pushing on to centuries now almost um s- some more valid than others the technique i agree with you i mean they're completely different beasts and even within video laryngoscopy you have for example, a Macintosh-style video laryngoscope you will use differently to a hyperangulated video laryngoscope. Uh, a hyperangulated glide scope, for example, you almost need to use a. I, I personally advocate using a rigid stilet or a preformed rigid stilet with it uh, universally. And uh, even with a bougie, you might you might get yourself into trouble sometimes because of because of how how the thing is angulated. Um, Whereas with, with a Macintosh-style video laryngoscope, you can use it exactly as a direct laryngoscope as well. So having, having a, a product that allows you to possibly use the best of both worlds, where you can have interchangeable um, blades, might be the, the way to go, especially if you don't need something that's extremely portable uh, or if you don't need to commit to one or another. Because you might want to choose a Macintosh-style video laryngoscope when you're teaching basic intubation skills. Let's say that you have somebody who, who needs tubing following a cardiac arrest and, and they've achieved ROSC and not a, need a tube and they need the lines and they need to go to ICU. Um, so you might want to teach your, your resident or, or, your, or your interns or, or someone how to intubate. So you go for a Macintosh-style video laryngoscope and you turn the screen away from them. They learn direct laryngoscopy, essentially, which is, which is a skill but they don't need to use a direct laryngoscope, which is a tool. And, and I think we need, to, we need to differentiate the skill from the tool specifically here. And we can use the tool of a, a video laryngoscope to teach the skill of direct laryngoscopy still. 
And I do agree that we still need to have that skill ready when everything else fails. You need to always be ready to have one more sort of trick up your sleeve because ultimately airway management is about knowing what to do next, essentially. And one of those things might be a direct laryngoscopy attempt. Um, so that all of that being said, uh, it's I don't think direct laryngoscopy is a vestigial skill, really, but but a direct laryngoscope might be an, an outdated instrument to to achieve that. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's one of those things that you, you always have to have it available um, and be skilled at it. And a lot of times, I'll gauge based on the patient that's in front of me um, that I use. You know what I reach for terms of keeping those skills up for direct laryngoscopy it is something that we do need to do and it's just like the mantra of emergency medicine it's get the best use the best tool you have and then if that doesn't work just make it happen um you know when i when i started off as a year of surgery i was used to going to the or um, or the theater and um having everything perfect you know everything the way you wanted it how you wanted it how you wanted it handed to you everything was just perfect if not you just everybody went bananas um, but then in emergency medicine, you know, it's whatever sit in front of me. It's just like a few days ago with, with one of my students uh, that was with me about, you know, trying to get this, fix this degloved finger. And it's like, well, how are we going to do this? I was like, well, we're going to do it however it makes it work. And uh, we're going we're gonna to learn as we go. We're going to figure it out as we go and uh, get the best outcome for our patients just because that's what uh, critical care, stabilizing emergency medicine is all about. So uh, talking here with Dr. Jan Hansel um, about his uh, art, Cochrane view on the VL versus DL. Any closing thoughts, summaries, uh, or whatnot, and also a way to uh, contact you access if folks have questions. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I think I think in terms of video laryngoscopy, we've reached a point where we have sufficient evidence to support going for video laryngoscopy first, I think, at this point in time. Uh, one might have made an argument even a few years back, but I think finally we've reached that sort of tipping point where hopefully over the next five to ten years we'll embrace it a little bit more. So so going forward we'll reach for video laryngoscopy as our, as our first modality uh, to, to um, intubate patients. In terms of the full review, I would urge anybody who's interested into doing a deep dive uh, to have a look at the Cochrane database of systematic reviews, cochranelibrary.com, and search for video laryngoscopy, and it'll be the first first thing to pop up. Uh, or, or if you search for my last name, you'll you'll find it as well. Uh, and it was in the fourth edition, the April one, uh, that this was published. So I would urge anybody who, who's more interested in this to to have a have a read at least at you know have a look at the abstract. Um, and yeah, Ryan, I'd, I'd just like to thank you again for, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one, I hope you heal up pretty quickly, get back to work so you can eventually be, uh, you finish up your registrar experience. I think you mentioned you were hoping to be there by age 40. Um, yep. <laughs> so, um, so, um, and that being said, also, uh, enjoy your uh, Kentucky beverage. That'll help your uh, sore throat. Um, if not, it'll at least help you forget it. And, <laughs> uh, thank you, sir. Um, Cochrane Review is released on April 4th of 2022, and as Dr. Hansel mentioned, um, if you search his name, H-A-N-S-E-L, as well as VLDL Intubation, it pops up as the first thing on the search engine, at least on the one that I used. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find some interest, very interesting uh, information, and I think drives a lot of what m many of us knew and uh, especially those that are going to be emergency medicine, uh, EMS, dealing with those types of things. 
uh, implementing those programs, some, some data to help support that transition uh, and getting those uh, VL devices uh, into your facilities. Um, as for me, uh, you can contact me, rstantonatasep.org, rstantonatasep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter, as well as I encourage everybody, whatever platform you like, whether it's uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, or whatever the heck the other ones do, um, you know, so you subscribe to the podcast. So you're getting every week's editions of the podcast. I think I saw that we've got 350, no, 320 something episodes currently on SoundCloud. So you can search those things back. And that's one thing I love to see about the statistics is how many folks are going back and looking at some of those podcasts from months, if not years ago, that have talked about many important topics and research and data and downloading those and listening to those um, as time goes on. And that's what we want it there for. We want it to be the modern uh, 21st century library where you can go in and find the topics that you're looking for and take a listen and uh, stay up to date as much as you can on uh, current practice, evidence, research, and opinions on those types of things. Uh, so Dr. Hossel, thanks for joining me here on the Frontline Podcast. Thank you. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Frontline.